So this week, the Babylon Bee posted on their website an introvert's guide to surviving church greeting time. <laughs> Be good for this church, what do you think, huh? So recommendations included stand perfectly still and don't look at anyone because many introverts believe that this renders them invisible. Um, sneeze in all directions without covering your mouth, and this is more effective now that we don't have to wear masks. Uh, wear an I'm with her t-shirt left over from the Hillary Clinton campaign. And this works outside church as well. And then my favorite, start talking about prophecies and revelation. You'll become known as the weird revelation guy and people will not want to talk to you. <laughs> so we have all encountered weird revelation guys. Once they start talking about current events and how they are fulfilling prophecies and revelation, um, you know, we're all looking for an exit, at least most of us. And um, so I have a quick story here to share. Many years ago, I was having lunch with Mike Spencer at an Arby's here in Fort Wayne, and another customer came over to our table and asked if we were Christians. He must have seen us pray before the meal or something. And most Christians would be happy, quite happy, to say yes to a question like that. But I was extremely tempted in that moment to deny it. <laughs> There was just something about this guy that seemed off, and um, if I said yes, I just knew that we were going to end up being held captive to something weird and crazy. And um, as you know, religious people can be quite weird and crazy. So um, before I could answer, uh, Mike smiles. Everyone who knows Mike can easily picture this. And he says, why, yes, we are. Hi, my name is Mike, and this is Wendell. <laughs> are you a fellow believer as well? How can we help you? And um, as you guessed, he was a weird revelation guy. And we were held captive, and I did not enjoy my lunch. And um, I was quite irritated with Mike for being so welcoming. And it took me three months before I could read Revelation again. So whole scene's kind of easy to picture, isn't it? And my fear is that after this series, I'll be the one known in this church as the weird revelation guy. Um, which might actually be an improvement to my reputation here. So, all right. So originally, my title to the series was the Revelation of John, but uh, Josh Miles pointed out that it should be the Revelation of Jesus Christ to John, and I found that somewhat comical in light of my exhortations last Sunday to read this book carefully and to pay attention to the details. And apparently, I failed to read the first verse carefully and missed that important detail. But a more accurate title for this series would actually be Observations About Revelation. As stated last week, this is not going to be a verse-by-verse -verse exegetical study, though there will be some passages where we will do that, but we're not going to do that with the whole book. Nor am I going to try to interpret all the events described in the book or make speculations about how they might uh, refer to world events and so on. We might do a little bit of that, but they will simply serve as examples of the different ways a passage could be interpreted. My main objective is pretty simple. It's just to help appreciate all the, all the other stuff, the really important stuff going on in this book that is often overlooked, unfortunately. Stuff that, um, you know, uh, stuff other than matching verses to current events, trying to do that, because there is far more to Revelation than eschatology. Now, as stated last Sunday, there is um, much in this book that is hard to understand, but as I shared 
uh, I have come to love it because of those parts that I do understand. And so in this series, I'll be highlighting those, sharing observations I've made while reading this book over the years, along with other information that I've collected from other sources, and including some commentaries from time to time. And this is just going to help set things up for our study of the warnings and exhortations given to the seven churches there in chapters two and three, which we will eventually get to. And then we'll name that series the seven churches in Revelation or the seven churches of Revelation, whatever Josh Miles says it's supposed to be. All right. So before we dive into what I prepared for this morning, I'd like to elaborate a little bit more on something I shared last week. At the very beginning, I noted that the message would at times feel more like one of those personal reflections that we do here from time to time than an actual sermon. And so that'll be true of this, uh, this morning as well. I want to start things off by sharing a little bit more about how I personally have benefited from this book. I noted last week that there are certain truths, themes, and concepts taught in the didactic portions of Scripture that Revelation has helped me to appreciate and grasp even better. Certain things that I knew to be true became more real. And I shared an example of this. The vivid and colorful drama of the Lamb being worshipped in chapter 5 is is beautiful and powerful and intense. It's, it's even breathtaking when read carefully. There's nothing like it anywhere else in Scripture, especially in the way that that worship builds. If you, if you follow that, every verse is very rich. And the same sense of wonder and veneration is found in the chapter before it, chapter four, 4, where the object of the worship is the one who sits on the throne. And there are several of these scenes in this book where worship in the throne room of heaven is described. And I'm aware of what the Bible teaches on the subject of worshiping God, but nothing has had the impact on me like these astounding worship scenes in Revelation. Let me offer a few other examples as well. Similar to this, the book of Revelation has helped me to better grasp the majesty of God with all of its glory and terror and awe. The drama and images of Almighty God on his throne with lightning and peals of thunder and earthquakes surrounded by terrifying and mysterious cosmic beings falling down before him in worship are quite intense and awe-inspiring. Again, such passages cannot be read too quickly. I have found great benefit in reading them existentially. That is, I try to place myself there, enter the scene as a first-hand witness rather than view it from afar as a detached reader. I try to feel the weight of the reverence appropriate for the setting. Likewise, Revelation has helped me to take more seriously God's resolved opposition towards sin and his hatred for it. Now, this truth, of course, is not hidden in other books of the Bible. It is clearly asserted over and over, but this book really fleshes that out in full living color. You know, God's anger and fury. The passages are filled with, the pages are filled with violent images of his wrath being meted out on the disobedient. Those who rebel against him and his kingdom are subjected to harsh judgments. In fact, this makes up most of the book. It is a disturbing book to read. It is scary. The severity of God's wrath is weighty and grave and terrifying. It is, it is something that should invoke some level of fear in, in every one of us. Anyone considering walking away from the faith and disowning the Savior and turning to a life of sin would do well to read this book carefully. Anyone who has not yet surrendered to God, holding back from submitting to his lordship, repenting and embracing his forgiveness, should read it, read it carefully, 
and do so soon, while you still have the opportunity to heed its warnings. God's holiness and justice and righteousness is powerfully portrayed on every page. It is the most sobering book in the whole Bible to read. It is a serious read. On the other side of the spectrum, the book of Revelation has also stirred within me a great sense of eager expectation about the new creation. The whole thing just sounds wonderful. It really does. And all of us should have a deep sense of, of marvel and excitement about it. You know, but all my life I've heard that in the coming kingdom, our time is going to be spent in endless worship. And the picture that comes to mind then is endless singing. While singing is a fulfilling experience, it is not the activity that is described in the last chapters of Revelation. And to be quite candid, I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> about, after, you know, after four or five songs, I'm, uh, I'm sure I'll be uh, ready for something else unless we're singing See the Conqueror, and then I could do that maybe six or seven times. But either way, I can't imagine a whole eternity of nonstop singing. And Revelation promises more. There are other ways to worship God than singing, and, there, and these are described in the last chapters. And we'll talk more about that later on in the series. It's a, it's a subject that I love. And it is in the book of Revelation that I came to appreciate the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who rose and conquered and reigns. And this is not just religious jargon, some sort of abstract idea that we fill our songs with, but something very real and powerful and relevant and weighty. The images in this book that dramatize this grand truth, they are epic, dramatic, otherworldly, you might say. And I have a great love for those images. In fact, you may have picked up a little bit of this on Easter when I was talking about Revelation 1.18, describing Jesus as having the keys to death and Hades. It's just one of my favorite verses in, in, in all of Revelation. Anytime Christ is mentioned in this book, we should stop and take notice. It deserves our attention. Whenever he is mentioned, there are intensely powerful things going on. And this morning, we're going to spend some time on that. Now, I could go on talking about other ways I've benefited from the book, those parts of it that are violent, scary, difficult to understand. Um, there are those, but it also enjoys a certain beauty and wonder and mystery that does set it apart. It vividly portrays the majesty and triumph and grandeur of God's holy will coming to pass. And there is certainly no shortage of drama. And if, we, if read carefully, it can be an engaging book to read. But unfortunately, again, many, books miss, many folks miss out on this because they just get sidetracked trying to connect its prophecies to world events. Now, last week, as you will remember, we tracked the action, and there is a lot of it. We noted that everything in this book consists of a carefully planned succession of events. Everything that happens depends on something else happening before it, like the falling of dominoes. There is no new heavens and no earth until there is a great day of judgment, which follows the defeat of the beast and the devil, which follows the seven bowls of wrath, each poured out in a specific order, which follows the sounding of seven trumpets, each blown in a specific order, which follows the seven seals, each opened in a specific order. This is how things move. It is how the book flows. And it all starts when the scroll that is bound by the seven seals is taken from the one who sits on the throne. The scroll is taken, the seals are opened, and all of this sets off a chain of events that cannot be stopped. 
but that scroll could only be given to someone who was worthy. And as described in chapter 5, no one was found worthy. Only one, the lamb who was slain, the lamb who triumphed over death in Hades. By his sacrifice, he purchased for God men from every tribe and language and people and nation. He is the one, the only one, worthy to be the Lord of history, the one worthy to bring to completion God's perfect and holy will. In the opening of those seven seals, he, again, sets in motion a series of events that will culminate in a grand climax, the creation of a new heavens and a new earth in chapters 21 and 22. So today we are going to build on this. We're, we will want to see what else it is that Revelation can teach us about him. How is Christ portrayed? What does he do? How do others relate to him, respond to him? What truths about him are highlighted, emphasized, and so on? In other words, what is the Christology in Revelation? So we're going to start there at the beginning in chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. In fact, um, there is enough here in chapter 5 to keep us busy for the rest of the morning, and we'll continue this uh, with the Christology uh, next week. Chapter 1 does deserve excuse me, does deserve some time because it serves as a foundation on which the rest of the book builds on, and this will become evident as we work through it. So starting at the beginning with verse 1, and Revelation is pretty easy to find. It's the last book in your Bible for those who are still looking for it. Kim laughed. There you go. For those streaming online, the whole congregation just busted out roaring in laughter over that joke. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So verse 1, the title and subject of this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But even here, right off the bat, with the very first verse, we encounter our first debate among the scholars because they don't all agree on what this means or how it should be translated. And I, I think this is really interesting because it's, it's, we have it right here in, first, in the very first verse. So the question is this, does the phrase mean the revelation about Jesus Christ or the revelation from Jesus Christ? It could go either way. If the word should be translated about, then Jesus will be the subject of the book from start to finish. If the word should be translated from, then other themes or issues might be central to the book. So without spending a lot of time on this, let's, it's just safe to say that both are true, and that becomes evident when you read it. The message is from him, but it's also about him. He is cer certainly the central figure. The book opens, as we will see here in a few verses, with a powerful and stunning vision of Jesus revealing himself to John. And the numerous judgments that the earth is subjected to that fills the contents of this book are the result of his lordship in action. Some of these judgments resemble the plagues in Egypt, and in these we are, we are reminded that he is greater than Moses, and that as the lamb who was slain, he is greater than the original Passover lamb. Also, the book includes a number of scenes showing us the throne room in heaven where authoritative declarations about him and his kingdom and his authority over the earth are made. And finally, Revelation concludes with Christ at the center of the throne with God the Father. 
from which he provides eternal light for the new Jerusalem, where he with the Father is served and worshiped for all eternity. And so, yes, Revelation is about him. The book begins with Jesus, ends with Jesus, and is centered on Jesus. At the same time, it is also a revelation from Jesus, as verse 1 makes very clear. It is from him to John, and it is sent from him to John by an angel. And so again, Jesus Christ is both the author and the subject. The message is from him, and it is a message of which he is also the main focus. Now for verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So here we see that John provides three titles that describe Jesus. Each one offers special encouragement to the members of the seven churches um, who were facing the threat of persecution. First, he is the faithful witness. Jesus is the one who remained faithful to the truth when threatened by both the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities, faithful even to the point of death. He refused to deny his teachings or anything he said in those teachings. He refused to deny his mission, refused to deny his relationship to the Father, refused to deny his prophecies, refused to deny who he was, and this refusal cost him his life. Now, the Greek word used here for witness, as many of you know, is where we get the word martyr from. And though there are examples of martyrdom in Revelation, the only one who is actually named is Jesus. The point is, he serves as a model of faithfulness for those facing hostility. And indeed, it seems that this may be one of the reasons for this book, to comfort those who are suffering for the faith and to encourage them to endure and not give up. And when you read the book, you find many passages to that effect. Those, those who follow the example of Jesus, the faithful and true witness, will enjoy a great reward. But they need to stand firm and endure. And I counted around 24 different references to persecution in Revelation. The second title here in verse 5 is the firstborn from the dead. It's a familiar title. Paul also uses this uh, of Jesus in his letter to the Colossians, and you may remember that we've talked about that quite a bit in the past. Jesus is the first one, is the first to come through that womb that had forever been closed, a womb that had never given life. He is the first, the firstborn, the first to rise from that grave. And a time, and there, and a time will come when many more will rise as well. And this, of course, would be a special comfort to those facing death for his name. As the firstborn from the dead, his resurrection, again, is the guarantee that those who endure to the end will also be resurrected. Hence, they have nothing to fear, even from death itself. And this is because death will not, cannot hold them, not hold them forever. The third title ascribed to Jesus here in verse 5 is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I love this title. You know, it is not... It is... It is Jesus, not Caesar, who reigns over the affairs of mankind and does so, as we know from other passages in this book, with a rod of iron. And again, to believers suffering persecution under the power of the Roman emperor, this title of Jesus would encourage them indeed. Even if the current events seem horribly hopeless, 
Readers are to hold fast on the conviction that Jesus is in charge, that nothing is outside his domain, that every square inch is his, and that all things will eventually be made right. And it is so important that, per that persecuted believers anchor themselves on this truth that Christ, as the ruler of the kings of the earth, becomes the prevailing theme in the chapters that follow. Now, as you look at these three titles, each one seems to accent a particular stage of Christ's saving work, from his obedience and death on the cross as the faithful witness, to his resurrection as the firstborn from the dead, to his final victory over all human powers and hostile armies as the Lord of the nations. As John lists three titles of Jesus in verse 5, he also lists three works of Jesus in the sentence that follows. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. He loves us. That'd be a good thing for those early Christians to hear, facing hostility for their faith. That love is evidenced by the fact that he has saved us, freed us from our sins, and is evidenced by the fact that he made us to be a kingdom and priest. That he freed us from our sins is a theme that is repeated throughout the book at various times, and as you may remember, it's one of the reasons that thousands upon thousands of angels worship Jesus there in the throne room of heaven. In declaring that Jesus made us a kingdom and priest, we see that salvation is not just what God saves us from, our sins, but also what he saves us to, our destiny, to serve him as his co-regents, reigning with him as promised throughout this book, and serving him as priests, worshipers who have direct access to him and who represent him to the world as his faithful witnesses. And so this actually kind of takes us back to Adam and Eve, where they, with authority delegated to them by God, ruled over his creation as king and queen and who, before they sinned, served and worshipped him in his very presence. And so again, as in other places in Revelation, we see here in verse 6, Christ restoring what was lost in the fall. Now for verses 7 and 8. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, so here in the opening chapter, we find this expectation of a glorious day when Christ will return in triumph and bring history to a close. In Daniel's vision of the four beasts, we saw, um, he saw one, quote, like a son of man coming with, quote, the clouds of heaven. Likewise, Zechariah prophesied that on the day of the Lord, the inhabitants of Jerusalem would look upon the one they had pierced and mourn. So these two prophecies are joined and are used to describe both the impending return of the victorious Christ and the response of a hostile world to the revelation of his universal sovereignty. The event is so immediate and certain that John can announce, look, he is coming when he says, every eye will see him. So the phrase, they will look on the one they have pierced, uh, we should not limit this to, this to just those who were there on the day of his crucifixion. It includes everyone of every age, every one of us has sinned, and therefore everyone is shared in the piercing of his hands and feet. We have all shared in the piercing of his side with that spear. 
The passage also speaks of mourning. The world will mourn because of him. The mourning results from the realization that divine judgment has now come to the degree that his return, that his return is of great joy to those who are his. It is to that same degree that his return is of great dread to those who are not. The mourning is not sorrow for sinning against Christ. It is not a mourning of repentance. It is now too late for any of that. It is instead a weeping and anguishing of regret and shame and of remorse. The thrust of the verse is that upon the return of Christ, where every eye will see him, unbelievers will mourn the judgment they know is coming, the judgment that results from their having rejected him. And so this final, so shall it be, amen, at the end there in verse 6, is an expression of vigorous approval. Now, in response to this, God himself speaks in verse 8. Interestingly, we don't have any account of God speaking again in this book until we get to the end, in chapter 21. Here, God declares that he is the Alpha and the Omega, which, of course, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the first and the last and everything in between. That is, he is the sovereign Lord over everything that takes place in the entire course of human history. And this particular title, Alpha and Omega, will become quite significant in a few verses down from here. And so, to recap everything from verses 4 to verse 8, uh, what begins as a normal greeting is immediately transformed into a lyrical hymn of praise to Christ. While God the Father is the first to be mentioned, the one who is and was and who is to come in verse 4, the emphasis, as we see, quickly shifts to the redemptive work of the Son. He is singled out as the one whose love purchased our freedom from sin. He is the first to rise from the grave with the promise that many more will follow. And he is the one who, by his death and resurrection, has equipped us to serve the Father as kings and priests. It is to him, the resurrected Christ, that glory and power are ascribed. He is the one who will come on the clouds of glory, and the entire human race will witness that triumphal return. God himself, the eternally existent one, indicates his approval of the praise and adoration directed to the Son and to his role as the ruler of the kings of the earth. So the salutation doxology then prepares the reader for the exalted vision about to occur as described in the following verses. And so let's resume there now in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on the day of the word of God, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead. 
Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. John encounters the resurrected Christ referred to here as someone like a son of, like a son of man, a favorite title that Jesus used of himself and is itself a reference to Daniel 7.13. We are told in verse 10 that John is in the spirit, and so what he sees here is a vision. And like other visions in the Bible, the vision is going to consist of striking images packed with rich symbolism. And so we have to be a little careful with all of this. Again, what he sees is a vision. This is not a physical encounter. Uh, this is not really a Christophany. What John sees is a symbolic representation of the glorified Christ. The vision is real, but what he sees is a symbolic representation. Certain key truths about Christ are being revealed using powerful symbols, powerful truths. So just hit the pause button there for a moment. Take chapter 5, for instance. There, John sees Jesus as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. But again, that is hardly what Jesus looks like. Likewise, here in chapter 1, Jesus has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. But obviously, this is figuratively. This is figurative. But yet, the truth behind that is no less powerful or real. Understanding this can actually be quite helpful in navigating many of the events described in this book when we're trying to work with symbolism. And so we'll talk more about that uh, some eventually. Now, fortunately, the symbolic descriptions here before us are not difficult to interpret. In one way or another, they all serve to highlight Christ's glory and power and majesty, his authority, awe, and worthiness to be praised, worshipped, and obeyed. At the same time, we want to be a little careful to not overinterpret them, overdo it. Generally, we have two problems with those trying to interpret this book. Some people take too many things too literally, and others read way too much into the symbols, which then can be quite a stretch. And most weird Revelation guys are guilty of both, <laughs> which is why they're weird, right? So we should also note that the descriptions here are similar to the ones found um, uh, in visions that Daniel had. Uh, one regarding the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, another one in chapter 7 about uh, a vision regarding a son of man, and yet another vision in chapter 10 about a glorious one. So the Jewish reader would then recall those visions and make the obvious connections. And primarily that connection would be this. The portrait of the glorified Christ in John's vision depicts both a divine warrior who will go to war against God's enemies and the end-time judge of the world. So let's break it down. First, Jesus appears among the lampstands, which, as it is explained here, represents the seven churches. And this illustrates that Jesus is present with his church. He is not aloof from his people. He is deeply involved in their situation, superintending and guiding them. The long robe and golden sash most likely refers to Christ's honor, majesty, royalty. He is stately, dignified, regal, and the very sight of him should invoke an attitude of reverence. The hair of his head being like wool and white as snow is how the Ancient of Days is described in Daniel 7. It represents accumulated wisdom and dignity. 
In Greek literature, eyes like fire describe eyes of passion and determination and zeal. But here, they probably also depict divine insight, the ability to look through someone, so to speak, to penetrate their soul. He sees all. Nothing is unknown to him. His feet, like bronze glowing in a furnace, represents both his strength and stability, as well as his splendor and grandeur. Feet signify direction and purpose, and here the image seems to have military overtones, that of a fierce warrior about to wreak havoc upon the nations. And indeed, this is a reoccurring theme in Revelation of Jesus, the divine warrior, going to war against the nations, meeting out his wrath and ruling over them with a rod of iron. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And this could be a picture of either the deafening sound of great waterfalls or the roar of giant waves breaking against boulders on a seashore. Throughout the Bible, God's voice is often described in this way, like the roar of raging waters. The awesome voice of God and here of Christ is commonly used when proclaiming judgment upon the nations. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. The sword was, of course, the main image the Romans used to symbolize their might and power, their military conquest and strength. It was by the sword that Rome became the mighty empire that it was, and it was by the sword that this empire would be protected and maintained. Against this image is the sword of Christ, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, including the ruler of the emperor of Rome. And it is his word that will ultimately prevail, Christ not the emperors. Rome is not the one in control. Christ is. Rome is not the one to be feared. Christ is. Rome is not the one who will never fall. Christ is. Christ, the divine warrior and sovereign judge, is the one who will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth as prophesied by Isaiah. And so this is a sword of conquest and a sword of judgment. And the symbolism here is twofold. It is from his mouth that comes the proclamation of judgment and it is the sword itself that carries out the judgment. And finally, we have his radiant face, like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. The picture here not only recalls his transfiguration in Matthew 17, but also the radiance of Moses when he descended from Mount Sinai. These would be images that would come to mind for the original reader. Now, we don't need to read too much into this. His face shining with blazing light testifies, of course, to his glory. He is the resurrected one glorified and exalted. And on top of that, he is God the Son. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is glorified and exalted. Because this opening vision sets the tone for what follows, the fact that his face was shining like the sun could be a looking forward to the new Jerusalem, where we are told the sun is not needed because the glory of God and the glory of the Lamb provide its light. Now, John responds to this revelation of Jesus by falling down prostrate at his feet as though dead. This, of course, shows us just how completely overwhelmed he is. Jesus comforts him, assures him, and encourages him to do, uh, uh, encourages him with these incredibly uplifting words. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. I was dead. But behold, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death in Hades. The first and the last is equivalent to the Alpha and the Omega, a title used of God that we just looked at in verse 8. 
This is nothing short than a declaration of his divinity, and Christ's divinity will, of course, be a driving force in the chapters that follow. So we have here an interesting pattern that is worth noting. In the beginning of the book, God declares that he is the Alpha and the Omega in verse 8, and a few verses later, Christ declares that he is the first and the last. And then at the end of the book, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then shortly after this, Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. So a close study of this pattern can reveal the remarkable extent to which Revelation identifies Jesus with God. These titles as attributed to God address his relation to the world. You know, God the Father precedes and originates all things as their creator, and he will bring all things to their final fulfillment. The same titles, when applied to Christ, cannot mean anything different. And this is just but the first of many other passages in this book that present what we call a high Christology. The deity of Christ is affirmed and emphasized along with his unity with the Father. Together they share the same nature, they share the same purpose, they share the same titles, and they are together worshipped. Jesus also refers to himself here as the living one, which emphasizes, of course, his immortality. Though he had died, he is alive forever. He shares in God's eternal livingness. And because of his victory over death, he holds the keys of death and Hades. Now, Hades was the name of a Greek deity who ruled over the realm of the dead, which was often referred to as the house of Hades. And so together, death and Hades represents death's power, the power to hold its captives in an in an inescapable prison. So the Greeks told stories of heroes like Orpheus who tried to bring his deceased wife out of Hades but failed, and of Heracles who succeeded in bringing some people up. But none of the mythological figures actually held the power over death. No one could keep someone from ever dying again. Pagans assumed that there was some god of the underworld who held that ultimate power and was the one who possessed the keys to that prison, the house of Hades. But as we know, only the one who actually defeated death, the living one, the firstborn from the dead, the one who will never die again nor can die, has the power over death and the right to those keys. He alone is the one, he alone is the one, the one able to release people from the house of Hades. And the day will come when he will do that. Death has no power over him because death has no power over the one who has never sinned. Not only is he not bound by its power, but death is bound by his power. Death answers to him. And this is symbolized by Jesus holding its keys. Now all of this again serves to encourage the original readers who were facing persecution. Jesus is the Lord over all. He really is in charge. He rules over the kings of the world. He rules over history itself. He even rules over death. And in light of this, who can be against us? Right? Who can be against us? Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. And these truths will dominate the chapters to follow. If Jesus is truly the Lord of the universe, he is worth suffering and dying for. And that theme will prevail in the chapters that follow. So next week, we will continue with this. We're going to look at how Jesus is portrayed in the rest of this book. He is, of course, the lamb who is slain for the sins of the world, the lamb who rose, conquered, and reigns. 
And our response to that is, thanks be to God. And rejoice the Lord is King, right? Which we will do now, because I'll have the musicians come forward as we close our service with that song. Let's stand if you would.